Lake Tahoe, California, a large freshwater lake that straddles the state line between California and Nevada, a lake that boasts being the second deepest in the United States, and a lake that lays home to a dark. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Secrets from the 1980s. Two young teenage girls aged 12 and 14 and their two adult chaperones traveled to the lake for the production of a program only to be reported missing when they failed to return home. In a tale of teenage models, anti-drug campaigns and murder, let's explore the case of Herbert Coddington. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve into this episode, I'd just like to give a massive thank you to Magellan TV for sponsoring this video. My regular viewers will know Magellan TV has been a constant supporter of this channel and other true crime channels, and we really wouldn't be able to make the content that we do without their help. So don't hesitate to go and show them some love and check out their extensive library of interesting documentaries, ranging from true crime, history, science, space, and even nature shows. Magellan TV was created by filmmakers and their producers alongside talented curators to ensure that each and every documentary on their service is the most premium that you can find. I've recently just watched Tracking Russian Hackers, which is an hour-long documentary that explores the invisible war, where viruses are terrifying weapons and information a key issue, a cyber war. I found it so interesting to see an insights into the world of hacking, and I think you will be just as interested as I was. So uh, after you've watched it, I'd love if you could drop a comment on this video or send me a tweet or Instagram DM with your thoughts and opinions. Use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments to back yourself a one month free trial to Magellan TV, including all of their 4K documentaries at no extra cost. I'm looking you up one month for free. Hello. Time to binge watch some more true crime shows, documentaries. Let's go. Now back to the case. 
May 14th, 1987, a man phones up the Barbizon Modeling School and Agency in Reno, Nevada, claiming to be from a communications company based in Georgia. The man on the phone explains to the worker who had answered the phone that he was looking for a few teenage girls to be part of an anti-drug campaign that he had been tasked with. Production companies booking models for work like that wasn't something that was out of the ordinary, and so the worker arranges for the man to come into the agency the following day to discuss the anti-drug campaign and to iron out the details. And so, on the 15th of May 1987, the man shows up at the agency and identifies himself as Mark Bloomfield. Mark explains to the owner of the agency that he is looking for two young girls for a shoot at Lake Tahoe. The owner of the agency immediately takes notes of Mark's appearance. Really dark black hair, slicked back with perhaps too much hair product, and horn-rimmed glasses. The man's presence disturbs the owner. He is nervous and appears to be in some kind of a disguise. Trusting their gut feeling about Mark, the owner informs Mark that they will not be supplying any models for his shoots. As it would turn out, the Barbizon Modeling School and Agency hadn't been the only agency that Mark had contacted. The day before Mark had rung up Barbizon, on the 13th of May 1987, he had also contacted the Aviance Modeling Agency, and when he had gone into the agency to speak with them, he had donned the exact same outfit that he would wear to the meeting with Barbizon. Now, not all too much is known about how this meeting went down, though it's clear to see that he was likely turned away yet again. Mark had also contacted the Avalon Agency on the 13th of May, inquiring about teenage models for his anti-drug campaign. This inquiry, again, yielded no results for the man. At some point prior to making these inquiries, in early May of 1987, a woman who we'll call Rebecca, who had been employed as a blackjack dealer in Stateline, Nevada, was contacted by Mark though she knew him as Gary Sarno, as he was a regular player at her blackjack table. For the purposes of simplicity, we're going to be referring to him as Mark for our coverage in this case, but it is important to note that he did use multiple different nicknames with different groups of people, multiple different fake identities. Mark had actually made a strange comment to a different blackjack dealer, a dealer that knew Rebecca, about Rebecca's daughter, saying that Rebecca had a, quote, pretty cute daughter. Now, normally that wouldn't be a particularly strange thing to say, but this was really strange because Rebecca hadn't spoken about her daughter at work, especially not to patrons. At three o'clock in the morning, Mark phones Rebecca and told her that his name was John Parrott. He used a Southern accent to try to disguise his voice and claims that he had been calling from Atlanta, Georgia. On this call, Mark, posing as John Parrott, claims that he had gotten her name and number from an agency and that he wanted to use her in a beer commercial. At some point in this call, Mark actually brought up Rebecca's daughter. Rebecca, though, told Mark that she wasn't interested and began to question the time of the call. Why had he called in the early hours of the morning at 3am? 
Mark then, still posing as John Parrott, began to tell Rebecca that he played at her blackjack table quite a bit, and ominously, that he knew a lot about her. Naturally, Rebecca quickly got weirded out by the man on the phone and hung up the call. Though, at 9am the following morning, Mark phones Rebecca again. He still kept up the facade that he was a man called John Parrott on this call, but regardless, he told Rebecca that his 3am call had in fact been legitimate, and asked Rebecca whether she wanted to speak to his partner to verify his request. Now, Rebecca hesitantly agreed to speak to his partner, but quickly realised that this partner was actually just Mark putting on a voice. This partner asked Rebecca if she wanted to go out to lunch with them, and Rebecca responded in quite possibly the best way possible. She hung up. You may have noticed several red flags already in this case. A strange man donning disguises and putting on voices, trying to talk agencies and women into doing a video shoot with him. It truly sounds like something out of a bad fiction story, but unfortunately, this case was very real, and the trivial ways in which Mark executed his plans very quickly turned seriously sinister. Mark contacted several agencies in his attempts to hire teenage models for his anti-drug campaign or beer commercial, and in a sad twist of fate, one agency accepted his request and set up an audition. On Thursday the 14th of May 1987, in the evening, Mabel Martin, who was the owner of Showcase Models, set up an audition for Mark's project at her agency in Reno, Nevada. Under the name of Mark Bloomfield, which, by the way, isn't actually his real name, but we'll come, we'll come back to his real name later on in this case, Mark hosted this audition process. Those who attended this audition noted that Mark's dark black hair appeared to have been dyed heavily and quite badly. Mark also wore glasses and a dark pinstripe suit. Between 10 to 12 different girls came to the auditions, with ages ranging from 10 years old to 16. They read from cue cards, speaking about topics surrounding drug abuse as they walked around the studio. Everyone there, from the teenage models, their parents, to the staff at the agency, believed the auditions to be for an anti-drug campaign commercial that was to be filmed on the Saturday. Two girls were ultimately selected from this audition, a 12-year-old girl who we'll call Ellie and a 14-year-old girl who we'll call Isabel. As we often do in our Curious Case episodes, some names are changed to protect the privacy of the victims involved. The following day, a second audition was held at a different modelling agency, somehow, which resulted in another slightly older teenage model being selected. We'll call her Sarah for the purposes of this coverage. Sarah, outstandingly, took particular notes of the vehicle that Mark had driven to the audition, a large, expensive car with a licence plate that she believed to have read TV Teen. Mark, as he had done in previous auditions, showed up in the same attire with the same painfully dyed black hair. He spoke with Sarah about the drug problems that the campaign video would be talking about, and looked over her portfolio. 
Mark told Sarah that they would be shooting at Regan Beach, which is in South Lake Tahoe. The three girls, their chaperones, and Mark had planned to all drive together to the location of the shoots, but Sarah stated that she'd drive herself as she was 16 and she had to go to Sacramento in the later hours of the day with her family on the day of the shoots. Though, in what could be considered a fortunate turn of events, Sarah received a phone call later that Friday evening and was told that she wasn't needed for the shoot anymore, as the photographer had deemed her to have been too old. Ellie and Isabel were contacted that same evening to confirm that they had been fully successful in their auditions and that they would be paid $50 an hour for the shoot, which would take place the following day. On the morning of Saturday the 16th of May 1987, the owner of Showcase Models, 69-year-old Mabel Martin, told her son that she was just going out to drive the two girls to South Lake Tahoe to shoot an anti-drug campaign and that she'd be back later that day. As per her agency's policy of having one chaperone for each minor, Mabel invited her friend 67-year-old Dorothy Walsh to be a chaperone with her. Mabel, in her 1984 Chrysler 5th Avenue car, drove over to pick up 12-year-old Ellie and 14-year-old Isabel before continuing on to pick up Dorothy Walsh. The group of four then drove to the Nuggets Casino Resort, where they had agreed to meet with Mark before continuing on to the location of the shoots. When they arrived, Mark was nowhere to be seen, and so they decided to go wait in the restaurants, and after a while, Mark eventually showed up and met with the group of four within the restaurants. They all then got into Mabel's car and drove together to South Lake Tahoe, where Mark had a trailer. It's important to note that Mark was quite wealthy and this trailer wasn't his permanent residence. It was like more of a holiday trailer kind of setup, if that makes sense. I mean, it's on South Lake Tahoe. You can just imagine how expensive um, that kind of trailer park would be. The group of five disembarked from the car upon arrival and Mark instructed the two girls to go into the trailer, which was quite a big trailer, so that they could change into their shorts and freshen up their makeup. Mabel and Dorothy followed behind the two girls, the two girls wheeling their suitcases into the trailer as they entered the trailer, with Mark following from the rear. Though, when the girls entered the trailer, they were confronted with a room with wooden walls decorated with pictures of various models. There were no mirrors within the room at all. Something was very wrong. Before Mabel and Dorothy could do anything, Mark rams them into the wooden-walled room and slams shut the door. Within seconds of doing so, Mark ran over to Isabel, who was 14 years old, and hit her hard on the jaw with a rectangular black object, estimated to have been about 5 inches wide and 2 inches thick, likely a piece of wood. Mabel and Dorothy, who were both in their late 60s, scrambled to their feet to try to stop the attack on Isabel, though they were met with a vicious attack against them. Mark began hitting both Mabel and Dorothy on the chest and in the face. After he was satisfied, he ordered Mabel and Dorothy to lie down on the floor so that he could tie them up, threatening to kill one of the girls if they didn't do what he said, if they didn't comply. Once Mabel and Dorothy were on the floor, Mark grabs flex cuffs, which are plastic handcuffs, very similar to zip ties, and uses them to bind the women's hands behind their backs and to bind their feet together to completely immobilize them. 
During this, Dorothy begged Mark not to kill them. Mabel told Mark to, quote, take us, don't hurt the girls. They promised to give Mark all of their money, anything he wanted, to which Mark replied by saying, quote, I know you will. 14-year-old Isabel emptied her pockets of any money that she had and gave it to Mark in an attempt to free the four hostages. Mark then placed a pillowcase over Mabel's head and secured it with flex cuffs. Mabel had been moved into a seated position on the floor and the pillowcase quickly began to deprive her of oxygen. She begged Mark to loosen the flex cuffs around her neck as she couldn't breathe, but Mark ignored her. After a short while, 69-year-old Mabel Martin began to gag before falling over to the side in silence. It was then that Mark ordered Ellie and Isabel to lie over the legs of Mabel and Dorothy. Mark used more flex cuffs to tie their hands and feet together. After he was satisfied that they were secure, Mark picked up 14-year-old Isabel and placed her on the bed that was in the room before moving 12-year-old Ellie to the floor besides the bed. Mark grabbed a jacket and a pair of shorts and put the jacket over Isabel's head and the shorts over Ellie's, blindfolding them, though Isabel was still able to see the carpet. Shortly after being blindfolded, both girls heard throwing up sounds and gargling noises coming from 67-year-old Dorothy Walsh. The noise lasted for a few moments before silence. They then heard what sounded like something being dragged, what is now believed to have been Mabel's and Dorothy's bodies being moved. About 15 minutes later, the girls heard the sound of plastic bags being dragged across the floor, and both the girls came to the conclusion quite quickly that Mabel and Dorothy were no longer in the room with them and were likely dead. After a while, Mark returned to the room where Isabel and Ellie had been left tied up and blindfolded. He removed the flex cuffs from the girls and retied up their hands at the front of their bodies with a belt. Mark then put a ski mask over Isabel's eyes, a pillowcase over the top of that and secured it with rope around her neck. Despite this, Isabel was still able to see the carpet and spotted a red substance on the carpet to the right of the door. When she asked what it was, Mark responded by saying that he had spilled some Kool-Aid and that he was going to clean it up. 12-year-old Ellie managed to be able to see Mark scrubbing a dark brown stain on the carpet, a stain which would later be tested and identified to have been the blood of Dorothy Walsh. Interestingly, during this, Mark wore a plastic bag over his head and had what appeared to be wet hair. Sometime after the attempted cleanup, Mark informed Ellie and Isabel that he didn't want them and that his target had been Mabel. He told them that he'd likely be paid extra for what he had done to Dorothy. Mark removed the flex cuffs and blindfolds from both of the girls and told them that he might hold them hostage for a ransom. When 12-year-old Ellie asked Mark if he was going to kill them, he flashed a pistol with a silencer attachment and jokingly said that if he had wanted to kill them, he already would have done. With her blindfold removed, Isabel scanned the room that she was now trapped in and noticed what appeared to be eye holes in the door to the room. Mark offered the girls some water before making them turn around, blindfolding them and putting pillowcases over their heads again. Mark then left the room and after what likely seems like hours, he returned with fruit for the girls. Sometime later, Mark made his first major mistake. He brought the girls magazines to read. 
but had neglected to remove an address label from one of the publications. Isabel quickly noticed this address label and secretly peeled it from the magazine and stashed it in the suitcase that she had brought with her for the video shoots. The address label listed a name that she hadn't heard of up until this point, Herb Coddington. And Isabel realized that Mark's name wasn't Mark at all, but was actually Herb Coddington. She had uncovered the true identity of her kidnapper and of the murderer of Mabel Martin and Dorothy Walsh. Herb Coddington left the girls in the room until the morning, though the girls barely managed a few minutes of sleep. The following morning, on Sunday the 17th of May 1987, Herb brought the girls eggs and strawberries for breakfast and forced the girls to take vitamins. After they had finished their breakfast, he granted them permission to venture out of the wood walled room and into the living room of the trailer. That morning, Herb had worn what appeared to have been a turtleneck around his head with the arms of the garments tied over his mouth and a ski hat over his hair. Despite the strange headwear, both girls made out Herb's hair to not be black anymore, but orange. It is believed that Herb bleached his hair significantly, which would explain the what appeared to be wet hair the night before and the plastic bag over his head. And with a lack of toner, this caused his hair to become orange in color. The girls and Herb watched television in the living room for a while that morning, up until Herb decided that he wanted to work out and that he wanted the girls to also work out. He moved the girls back into the wood walled room to allow them to change into clothes appropriate for working out. As the girls got changed and waited in the wood room, they heard heavy breathing coming from the other side of the door, which made it seem like Herb was working out. Whether he had been working out or pleasuring himself in some way while watching the girls getting changed is debated. Herb then told the girls through the door that he was going for a shower. After getting cleaned up, Herb opened the door to the wood room and instructed the girls to go into the living room to work out to a videotape, after which the girls were put back in the wood room. Now Herb had offered the use of the shower to the girls, which they both declined, though Isabel asked to use the bathroom to brush her teeth. In the bathroom, Isabel took notes of brown hair shavings all over the sink. After Isabel had returned to the wood room, Herb told them something that makes me shiver with anger, upset, and hatred. He told the girls that they were going to film a videotape that was to be sold in Europe, and that they were going to film it with an 18-year-old boy that his friends had kidnapped. Though, as you probably guessed, this 18-year-old boy didn't exist and ended up just being Herb putting on an accent. Both Isabel and Ellie were blindfolded again and Isabel asked whether this 18-year-old boy was going to rape them. Herb told them that no he wasn't and if the boy hurt them then it hurt the boy. I will spare you the details of what happened next to the girls as they are far too disturbing and horrifying to repeat. Though I will tell you that Herb lied to the girls and ended up raping and sexually assaulting both 12-year-old Ellie and 14-year-old Isabel. Afterwards, Herb brought the girls into the living room and told them that they would have to film the videotape again as it hadn't been worth two cents, that nobody would buy it. Herb promised the girls that if they did just 10 or 15 minutes more for the videotape, then he would let them go home. And so, against their will, Herb forced the girls back to the wood room and raped them again in ways so perverted and disturbing it made me physically sick to read. 
It is important to note that during the rapes of both girls, Isabel spotted a red light in the corner of the wood room, consistent with that of a video camera recording. After the second videotaping, Herb allowed the girls to watch television. They both asked Herb for permission to call their parents, and he responded by saying that he would tape their voices so that he could play them back to their parents over a payphone though this call to their parents was never made. The girls were then put back in the wood room for the night, where they passed out exhausted from the trauma that they had experienced within the past two days. When they awoke on Monday the 18th of May 1987, Herb announced to the girls that he was going to release them somewhere and call the police so that they could be taken back home though he instructed them that they had to say they had been kidnapped and taken to a two-story house in Sacramento and threatened the lives of their families if they didn't obey. Herb, however, didn't release them. Ellie, Isabel, Dorothy and Mabel were all reported as missing when they failed to return back home on that Saturday night on the 16th of May 1987, and immediately the FBI became involved in the investigation. Isabel's stepfather had been the first to contact law enforcement about his stepdaughter's disappearance. This had been Isabel's first official piece of work that she was modelling, and knowing that he had to act fast. Isabel's stepfather, who we'll call Alex, went straight over to Mabel's studio to try and uncover any information about who the video shoot had been with and where they had gone. Alex ended up breaking into Mabel's studio and desperately searched through Mabel's Rolodex phone directory to try and find any contacts that could give him any more information. And by some miracle of the universe or miracle of God, he made contact with Sarah the older teenage model that had been told she wasn't needed for the shoot anymore. Sarah was able to give Alex the license plates of the car that she had seen on the day of the auditions. And so, armed with this license plate and with the information that the shoot was somewhere in South Lake Tahoe, Alex contacted his brother-in-law and other family members and set out on a search. Meanwhile, a composite sketch of Herb was drawn up and distributed as quickly as possible by the FBI. Alex had informed the FBI of the license plate that he had been given, and as the FBI began to run checks on it, Alex's brother-in-law found the expensive car with the number plate TVETEN parked in a car park at South Lake Tahoe. The FBI determined the license plate to actually have been a promotional card in the form of a license plate since prior to this case. He had witnessed old carpeting outside of Herb's trailer, and when he asked Herb, who you know he thought was called Gary, about this carpeting, he was told that Herb was making a soundproof room inside his trailer so that he could play the guitar. Tavitin further explains that Herb had purchased a Porsche from him, as Herb's BMW that he had purchased in Europe couldn't be registered in California. Though shortly after, Herb told him that he didn't need the Porsche anymore as he was going to get the BMW registered in Nevada, so gave Tavitin the Porsche back to sell on his behalf. About two weeks before the girls were kidnapped and the chaperones murdered, 
So Vertin gave Herb paper license plates from his dealership so that Herb could drive the BMW to Nevada for registration. Armed with all of this information, the FBI placed Herb's trailer under surveillance. So Vertin then telephoned Herb to inform him that his Porsche had sold and that he should come and collect the money from the sale. He also told Herb that the FBI were looking for him and that he should call them. These calls took place on Monday the 18th. Zavetin asked Herb whether he had been involved in the kidnapping that was being reported in the newspapers, and Herb replied by saying that he had done something much worse. The realization that Herb was going to be caught hit him hard, and he ended up phoning the FBI, telling them that he knew the FBI wanted to speak to him about the kidnapping in Reno. Herb informed the girls that they didn't have to worry anymore because they had, quote, found me. He instructed the two girls to give him their clothing so he could wash off his fingerprints, and by that point, his trailer was completely surrounded by FBI agents and law enforcement. Two of the FBI agents approached the trailer and knocked on the door, identifying themselves to Herb. Though Herb didn't open the door and instead shouted back at them that he'd much rather talk to them over the telephone. A few seconds later, Herb's telephone rang, and when he picked up, the FBI were on the other end. Herb told the FBI agent on the phone that there were people at his door, before telling the agent that the girls were in the trailer and that he needed to go to a hospital. Within a split second, law enforcement broke down the doors to the trailer as the FBI broke through the window, ordering Herb to lie down on the floor at gunpoint until he could be taken into custody. Herb was handcuffed and searched at gunpoint, and as that was happening, he told the FBI agents that he was sick, but the girls were okay. He informed them that Mabel and Dorothy were both in a back bedroom where he had placed them in plastic bags, as he didn't want any, quote, messies. The FBI searched through the trailer looking for the girls and found a room that had been built within another room, with the door secured by a 2x4 that acted as a bar. Inside, both 12-year-old Ellie and 14-year-old Isabel were rescued. When they were rescued, they weren't blindfolded or tied up at all. Law enforcement recovered the bodies of Mabel Martin and Dorothy Walsh. Herb admitted to the authorities that he had killed Mabel and Dorothy while he was being transported to jail. He further claims that he was sick and that he needed help. 28-year-old Herbert James Coddington was charged with two counts of murder, sexual offences including rape and a special allegation of multiple murder, which is a charge that carries the death penalty. Students and classmates of Ellie and Isabel rejoiced after hearing of their rescue, sending cards, flowers and balloons to them in celebration. Both Ellie and Isabel would recover fully from the traumatic two days that they were held hostage, though the psychological trauma would likely stay with them to the grave. Herb was also linked to another murder that had taken place in August of 1981. 12-year-old Sheila Keister had been kidnapped, raped and strangled in Las Vegas before her body was discarded besides an unpaved road. Bite marks found on her remains after dental casts were taken from Herb were identified to have been that of Herb, and so another charge of homicide was filed against him on the 22nd of July 1987. The trial against Herb began on the 8th of February the following year, and Herb pleaded innocent to all charges brought against him. 
He remains in custody without bail up until his trial. And throughout the trial, Herb didn't show a drop of remorse about what he had done. He only showed emotion when his mother took to the stand. Herb, who was now 29 years old, lowered his head and stared at the defense table as the verdict was read. A verdict that would bring joy and closure to so many. Guilty on all charges. Now Herb had actually attempted to use the not guilty by way of insanity defense method, but was ultimately found to have been of a sound mind during the crimes. As a result of the guilty verdict, Herb James Coddington was sentenced to death on the 20th of January 1989. To this day, Herbert has been on death row for 42 years and six months. We can only hope that the girls, their families, the families of Mabel and Dorothy and friends of the victims have managed to find justice with his sentencing. Thank you so much for watching this episode of my Curious Case series. Be sure to hit subscribe and click that bell icon so you don't miss when I post a brand new Curious Case episode. I'm trying to post a new episode every Sunday at 9pm UK time and if I don't, please do not hesitate to spam my social media and tell me off for it. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members, especially my lead in investigators, T. Vindiola, Samanthan O'Hara, Ash Medlock, Nikki, Layla Earl, and Cicely Thomas. If you want to support this channel, my Patreon is in the description. From $1 a month, you get access to videos a day early without advertisements at all, access to my scripts, free stickers, and other fun stuff. Now, there's no obligation at all to become a Patreon member, so please do not feel pressured at all to join. If you're not financially able to, my content will always be available for free right here on YouTube. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.